So we return today to our study in 1 John. Actually, we only have uh, two more messages left in the letter of 1 John. So this one and the next one next week. And we're going to be in 1 Samuel for a while. And we'll see if we'll get to another book in between as well. Um, so I'm just so encouraged. You know, this week we had some really nice weather. I know that things are looking white again, but sure will melt pretty soon. Our spring is always so encouraging, seeing things to be renewed and God's um, providence even through creation. Well, uh, one thing I would go before, I would say before we start here, uh, I really want to encourage you to, to come to the equipping hour, you know, that we meet at nine o'clock. I know that some of us, it's, it's kind of hard to be here a little earlier, um, but there's a lot of good topics and discussions, what scripture talks about on practical um, things in related to our lives. And this past few lessons were on ADHD, a biblical perspective on attention, what the world calls attention deficit and hyperactivity disorder. We talked a little bit about kids and adults, but this next um, Sunday we'll be covering the area of procrastination which I, I, I am guilty, I plead guilty, you know, especially during my college years and uh, seminary years, it was one of the major things that I had to grow in, um, to learn to be focused and um, managing my time well. So I want to encourage you to attend that, even if you don't come normally, um, it's maybe something that will help you just learn some truth from God's scripture to um, help you to manage your time better, all right? Okay, so our message will be in 1 John 5, chapter 5, starting on verse 13 and 17. As a way of introduction, I, I think there is a few subjects in the Christian life more underrated by God's people than the subject of prayer. Prayer, on the surface, as we might think, that prayer should be the most natural and uncomplicated part of the Christian living for what should be more natural than to speak to, in one's heart, to one's heavenly Father? Nevertheless, in practice, Christians often are confused by prayer and ask, what is prayer? What does? Does prayer change things, or does prayer merely change the one who is praying? How should we pray? What should we pray for? Who should we pray for? Can we be sure that God always hears prayers? Can we be confident that he will answer it? Most of these questions are answered in our text today. And so I want you to be um, excited and interested in this. And the fact that answered prayer is one more area of assurance for the doubting Christian. Most of us probably heard of George Miller that lived in the 18th century in his work with the orphans in England in the 1800s. Mueller was a great man of prayer, and he refused, uh, was known for refusing a regular salary and financial support for himself or the ministries that he led. Not that I'm endorsing that. <laughs> a leader of the Christian Brethren movement, Mueller said, um, and I quote, prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance. It is laying hold of his willingness. Therefore, nothing we ask for 
lies beyond the power of God except which lies beyond his will, his purpose, and his plan. With the assurance of eternal life, that's what uh, the letter of 1 John has been talking about, for the, about the assurance, comes another confidence, and that is the confidence of answered prayers. Prayer is the key that unlocks, this is our Torah. he says, prayer is the key that unlocks all the storehouses of God's infinite grace and power. All that God is and not all that God has, it is at his disposal, at the disposal of prayer. But we must use the key, prayer can do nothing that God can do, since God can do anything, prayer is omnipotent. So, with no more delays, 1 John chapter 5, verse 13 through 17. Thus says the word of God. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request which we have asked from him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will for him give life to those who commit sin not leading to death. There is a sin, a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should make requests for this. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin not leading to death. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we come before you with thankfulness in our hearts for your word that is an encouragement to us and that gives us hope and assurance and confidence. I pray, Father, for everyone here that they would have the same confidence. Lord, I pray that you would open our hearts to receive your words, to believe, to trust, May you bring comfort and you may, may you bring joy even in the aspect of prayer. We pray for all these things in Jesus' name, amen. All right, our, this is not a, a very easy text. I think there is so much debate on what this, especially the last end of this text, it's confusion um, on how to understand what is the sin and it's enough and what it is not. And so I hope to humbly state some of these things that, you know, what um, most Bible scholars have understood this text. But there is three major points. And if you haven't, had, haven't gotten the sermon outline, there is in the table there in the back where you can follow up some of the um, cross-references. Um, you might not have the time to open all of them, but you can look at them at home. So in the sermon outline, we have the believer's assurance of eternal life on verse 13. Verse 14 to 15, we have the believer's confidence in prayer. And then lastly, the believer's intercession for others from verses 16 and 17. That's our summary outline right there. So the first point is the believer's assurance of eternal life. And this is a, a fitting conclusion for what the author, um, the Apostle John, has been there written about the three witnesses and about having eternal life. We read this, um, our last message on 1 John. But here he tells his readers of the great purpose of the letter. Now, he, now drawing to a close, 
And it is natural to contrast with the purpose of his gospel. So verse 13, these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. So John does that in his writings. He likes stating the purpose for why he wrote. So if you turn back to John chapter 20, verse 31, he states the, go- the purpose for why he wrote the gospel. John chapter 20, verse 31 Actually, let's go back to verse 30 there. He says, Therefore, many other signs Jesus performed in the presence of, of the disciples, which are not written in this book. So he's talking about the book that he wrote. We know that there are other three books that talk about Jesus' life. And he said, But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So this was the, the purpose of the gospel was that people would believe in Christ to be saved. So they would have eternal life. The gospel was written for unbelievers that they might read the testimony of God, his son, uh, and believe in him to whom the testimony pointed, and thus receive life through faith. Now, this letter, on the other hand, was written for believers, for those that already trusted in Christ as their Savior. John's desire for them is not that they may believe and receive, but that having believed, that they may know that they have received, and therefore to continue to have this present eternal life. They already have it. It's just to remind that you have it already. You have this eternal life. Even when your heart accuses you, you can have this assurance and this confidence. That you may know means both in word and tense that they may gradually grow in assurance, but that they may also possess here and now a present certainty of the life that they have received in Christ. They have been unsettled by these false teachers that made them to be unsure of their spiritual state, that caused confusion for them. Throughout the letter of John, he has been giving them the criteria to say, how can we know that someone is a believer or not? And he talks about our love for one another. He talks about our confession of faith. He talks about our prayer life. And all these different things by which we can test ourselves to see if we're in a faith. His purpose is to establish their assurance. So the letter is to assure that you already have this eternal life. I appreciate how John Stott explains this. Putting together the purposes of the gospel on one side and the letter on the other side in four stages, namely that his readers may hear, and then hearing they may believe, and believing they may live, and living that they may know that they have that life. His emphasis is so important. It's important because it is common today to dismiss any claim to assurance of salvation as presumptuous. You hear that a lot. Oh, believers are just so presumptuous, so arrogant to say that they know that they're saved. And to affirm that no certainty is possible on this side of death, that's what people say. There's no way you can know that. But certainty and humility do not exclude one another. If God's revealed purpose is not only that we should hear, believe, and live, but also that we should know Presumptuousness lies in doubting his word, not in trusting it. And I'll say this again. Presumptuousness lies in doubting his word, not in trusting it. So it is not a presumption to say that we are saved. 
It is a matter of humility to say, no, that salvation doesn't come from us. It comes from the Lord, and that's what his word says. To doubt his word, that would be presumption. So in a real sense, the entire letter of 1 John has been pointing to this verse. It's like the culmination of all these things. And I want to give you a feel for this culmination. Let's go back all the way to chapter 1. Kind of do a little bit of a review here of what we have covered in this amazing letter. Chapter 1, verse 4. What does he say here? And I like the way that John Piper comments in these verses. He says... um, Chapter 1, verse 4 says, These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. Um, Piper says that John is an unashamed Christian hedonist. The joy of their assurance will be his joy, and he wants it. It is good to want that kind of joy. You know, we don't need to be let down. We have this assurance that give us confidence, that give us joy. Chapter 2, verse 1, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He's, he hopes with his book to, that will give them a fresh power to overcome sin. And part of this method is helping them to overcome sin is to assure them that their failures, their sins, do not have to prove fatal for their eternal life. We have an advocate with the Father, even when we fail God. Verse 12 and 13 from that chapter says, I am writing to you. So I want you to notice every time he says, I'm writing. This is the purpose. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven you for his name's sake. And I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young man, because you have overcome the evil one. And I have written to you, children, because you know the Father. In other words, he's filled with the hope that the ones he's writing to are true believers. They are forgiven. They do know God, and they have triumphed over the evil one. Chapter 2, verse 21, he says, I have written to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because there is no lie in the truth. It's the same thing. My letter is not to get you started in the Christian life, but to confirm that you are in it. Verse 26 of that chapter, he says, these things I have written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. He's concerned with the false teaching that was trying to dissuade the believers from their faith. This letter is meant to protect them from those who would lead them astray. In other words, the fact that we're born again does not mean that we no longer need warnings. We need these warnings. That's why John is writing them. And then finally, in chapter 5, verse 13, which is the one that we're in today, I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have this eternal life. What a blessing. What an encouragement. This is the one theme that dominates this letter. Most of of what is in here is designed to provide tests for life. I have written these things so that you may know that you have this eternal life. That is, that you may know that you're born again from death to life. So summing everything up in this letter, 
It's as if John is saying this, I'm writing because you are true believers, but they are deceivers in your midst, and I want you to be rock-solid confident in your present possession of eternal life as regenerate children of God, so that you are not drawn away after sin. And if this letter has the effect, my joy will be complete. When we have this certainty and this assurance, we're not scared, we're not, we're not afraid, we're joyful in the confidence that we have. So, at the heart of his reason for writing, it is the desire to help them to know that they're born again, and they now have this new spiritual life. The Apostle John tells, tells us that it is possible to have eternal life, the very life of God, and yet have doubts. However, he does not want us to have these doubts. He wants us to have assurance. Therefore, he provides these multiple tests, right? The, the, these things I have written revolving around three basic themes, the belief, your confession of faith, your obedience to God, and the love for others. And he repeats that kind of again and again and again, right? Those who believe in Jesus is the Son of God, pursue obedience. They love others. They can be assured that they have this eternal life right now. Today, forever. Don't doubt because of an ignorance of God's word and his promises. Don't doubt because of a faulty theology. You know, some people believe that you can lose your salvation, that this eternal life can be forfeited by your disobedience. Don't doubt because of disobedience. Don't doubt because of hate. Flee to Jesus. He is the word of life. He is eternal life himself. In this fleeing, we must remember feelings, they come and go. But in feelings can be deceiving. My confidence is in the Son of God and no one else is worth believing. No one else is worth believing. Jesus said in John 10, 28 and 29, you can um, open there if you want. He says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish, ever. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me, it is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I want to take Jesus at his word. If he says that if I am in his hand, nothing can remove me from his hand. Not even if I wanted to, I couldn't. I trust him that he is able to hold me fast even when I fail. Our next point is the believer's confidence in prayer. This then John now moves on from the kind of different confidence, a confidence enjoyed by the believing Christian, not only that he has the eternal life, but also that his, answer, that he, his prayers are answered. So verses 14 to 15 talks about the believer's confidence in prayer. Believer's confidence in prayer. This confidence is a word parousia that has been used a few times here in this uh, letter, a Greek word, and it basically means a, a, a boldness in approaching God and a confidence that one has. It's a, a freedom of speech that you, I can say anything to God, not in an offensive way, but a boldness that I know he hears and I have freedom of speech with God. 
the reference is that to access uh, is to have access to God and fellowship with Him, which constitute the eternal life of which John has been writing about. But the Christian is not supposed to think that God will grant just anything he might happen to pray for, however foolish or even sinful it may be, just because he prays for it. Let's see the qualifications here in verse 14 to 15. This is the confidence which we have before him if we ask anything according to what? His will. He will hear us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests which we have asked of him. So he must pray according to God's will. We should pray according to God's will. In the prayer, the Christian can absolutely be certain that God hears and answers his request so that whatever he asks, he obtains it. With this qualification, that he prays not according to his own sinful wishes, but rather according to what an all-wise, all-infinite, and holy God desires. Prayer is not a convenient device for us imposing our will upon God. Like, you, you hear, Lord, this is my grocery list. That's what you should be doing for me. We're forbending his will to ours, but... The prescribed way is subordinating our will to his own will. Why then can we be so confident in prayer? Earlier in the, church, in the third chapter, John said nearly the same thing as he does in this closed passage. So let's go back to chapter 3, verse 21, 22. He said a very similar statement here, um, chapter 3, verse 21 and 22. Beloved, if our hearts does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing in his sights. So there's a qualification here also, right? For these verses immediately go on to add because we obey his commandments and we do what is pleasing to him. Similarly, in Jesus' statements about prayer, Qualifications are also added to the effect that we must pray. When he tells us and teaches us to pray, he says that we should pray in my name, in his name, Christ's name, and remain in Christ to receive that. And that Christ's word must remain in the believer. So there is, there is information, there is instructions that inform the content of our prayers. The scripture informed the content of our prayers. This says a great deal about the nature of prayer, of course. Probably in most people's minds, prayer is thought of primarily as a means by which God's will is changed or at least enlarged to include the concerns of one's prayer. It is by prayer that we seek God's will, embrace it, and align it to ourselves in it. Every true prayer is a variation of the theme of your will be done. Last week, we celebrated the, the Lord's resurrection. We thought we reflected on his suffering in the, in the Garden of Gethsemane, where he submitted his own will to the Lord. God, I really wish that this situation would be passed for me, but not my will, but yours be done. And praise God that he answered that, right? According to his will. 
According to these verses, prayer is not so much getting God to pay attention to our requests as it is to getting our requests to align with his perfect and desirable will for us. It is learning to think God's thoughts after him and, and to desire what God's desire. Commentator Dodd says at this point, prayer is rightly considered is not as a device for employing the resources of omnipotence to fulfill our own desires, but a means by which our desires may be directed according to the mind of God and made into a channel for forces of his will. Now the obvious question comes, why anyone would, something, would want something contrary to God's will? We want what we want. <laughs> That's the truth of it. Whenever we want, and many times, many a times we want wrong things that clearly have been established contrary to his will in the Bible. But let me put this, on the other hand, in a positive light. I, I actually appreciate the way that Pastor Daniel Aiken uh, explains this. Why should we pray according to his will? He says, it is right to pray according to God's will, and it is wise to pray according to God's will. Why? He knows what's best. He wants what is best, his glory and our good. God wants to give you what you would want God to give you if you were wise enough to want it. I want you to, I'm going to read this again. God wants you to give you what, you would want God to give you if you were wise enough to want it. Now, God's will may be different from what you want, but I believe this. It is always better than what you want. It is always better what you want. Why? Romans 12, 2 tells us that God's will is good and pleasing and perfect. I want what God wants for me. I want God's will because that is good and pleasing and perfect. In such prayers and only such, he hears, he hears those prayers. That is, he takes note of our petitions. And in addition, he listens favorably to us. As in John 9, 31 and 11, 41 and 42, you can see the example of Jesus praying. The Christian assurance is indistinguishable to a doubtful certainty. I want you to notice there on that, on those two verses, 15 in particularly, he says the same thing twice. One is that he will hear us on verse 14. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And then he says the same thing in a different way. If we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know, so two we knows here. We know that he hears in whatever we ask, and we know that we have the request which we asked of him. So there's a double assurance, a double confidence that he has, which in reality is one, that we say we know that he hears us in the same way of saying, is the same way of saying that we know that we have what we asked of him. In the present tense that we have, it basically he's saying we already obtained it. We already obtained what we have prayed for. Mark eleven twenty four. Jesus says, therefore, I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them, and they will be granted to you. Isn't that interesting? It's not the, the you know, claim and have it. 
But it is by faith, you know, that God, if you're praying for something according to his will, that he will grant that, that he will answer that. It is good as done. Here we're told to believe we did receive it, what we request, and so it shall be. Commentator says, our petitions are granted at once, and then the results of granting are perceived in the future. So our petitions are granted, and then we'll see the results of that in the future. That's how it works. Now moving on to our last point here, verses 16 and 17. Having indicated the nature of true prayer and having stated the confidence in prayer that every Christian should possess, John now moves on to the content in answer to the question, what request should be the believer, should the believer bring to God? First response to that question is nearly always personal, which indicates no doubt our limited understanding of this privilege. When we think about prayers, we think about our needs for food or clothing or of a job or having a better job, our desire for having a spouse, the elimination of a difficult problem that we're dealing with, or other things, which there's nothing wrong with that. We should be praying for our needs and bringing them before the Lord. But what really points is that we, we think of ourselves when we pray many a times. It is somewhat a surprise, therefore, that we find, first of all, that John thinks not of himself, but others. And that as a result, his first a specific example of prayer is intercession. This is our third point, the believer's intercession for others. He says, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask. In other words, he shall pray. He will pray and God will give for him. Will for him give life to those who commit sin not leading unto death. So really, prayer implies responsibility. A part of that responsibility is intercession for others. Do others have needs? Then we should pray for them. The one who truly understands prayer and prays according to the will of God will pray for others. Just as in material ways, we will strive to show love in a practical way. I mean, the whole letter is talking about us loving our brothers and loving our neighbors as ourselves and, and being attentive to their needs. If we close our eyes to their needs, we're not really believers. We're not paying attention to their needs because we're self-focused. So the other way to, to, to look at this instruction is, you know, if we're true believers and we pray and we know that God answers our prayers, we should be loving others by praying for them as well. Open your Bibles to Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11. Um, I was reading this text the other day and, you know, paying attention to something that I haven't thought in a while. The disciples noticed that Jesus had a habit of praying. He would pray in the morning. He would pray before big missions. He would pray different situations. And, and they ask, teach us to pray. We want to learn how to pray like you do. And, you know, we, you know the fathers, um, what we call the, the, the prayer of the disciples, um, 
I'm not going to read that part, but you're familiar with it. Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, give us our daily bread. So you're familiar with that part. And then he goes on to give more specifics. He said, giving a parable. Verse 5. Suppose that one of you has a friend and goes to him at midnight and says to him, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread for a friend of mine that has come to me from a journey. And I have nothing to set before him. And from inside, he answers and says, Do not bother me. The door has already been shut, and my children and I are in bed. What a bother. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, Jesus says, even though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet, because of his persistence, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. Now suppose that one of your fathers asked by his son for a fish. He will not give, he will not give him a snake instead of a fish, will he? Or if he asks for an egg, will not he give him a scorpion? Will he? The answer is, obviously not. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Give life through the Holy Spirit for those who ask him. Now, I want to you should just notice something here. Jesus is trying to teach two things to his disciples. One, persistence, right? The, the whole thing with the guy knocking at the door at midnight. Said not necessarily because he's his friend, but because he kept bothering him. He's not going to leave until he gets it. Be persistent. And trust that God is good to give what is good. He's not a bad Father, if our, if our parents, being evil, they give us good things, how much more our Heavenly Father? Now, the, the, the twist really of this story here is that he's asking for a friend. He's not asking for himself or a need that he has. He's asking for a friend. I think that is the perfect illustration of intercession, of we having the same earnestness to ask for someone as we would be asking for ourselves. Let's come back to our text. Verse 14 and 15 were about petitions, right? Now verses 16 and 17 are about intercession. The issue here is seeing someone in sin. John is saying, you know, you, you have noticed that someone is caught up in a transgression. In the original text, actually, this word sin appears seven times, all the way from verses 16 through 18. And verse 16 is one of the most difficult verses to interpret. That's why we need some humility to know how this is supposed to be displayed. Verse 16 says that the assurance of eternal life, which the Christian should enjoy, verse 13, ought not to lead him into the preoccupation with himself to the neglect of others. 
On the contrary, he will recognize his duty in love to care for his brother or sister in need, whether the need which he sees be material in verses chapter... Actually, let's go to chapter 3, 17 and 18. It talks about us seeing the needs of those around us, our physical needs. It says, verse 17 of chapter 3, but whoever has the world's goods and sees his brothers, his brother in needs and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word and with tongue, but in deed and truth. So here he talks about us noticing the needs of someone. John comes back here to say, now if you notice someone sinning, what do you do? You pray. He cannot say, am I my brother's keeper? Am I supposed to be taking care of others? And do nothing. The verb translated says that he should pray. That's how our, trans, our translation translates, he shall pray. Um, really, in the original is the future tense, he will ask. He will see that need, that spiritual need, that person is sinning, and he will ask on their behalf. It expresses not the writer's command, but the Christian inevitable and spontaneous reaction. The way to deal with sin in the congregation is to pray. God hears such prayers. The Greek sentence reads literally, he will ask and he will give him life. Since God is the giver of life, asking is a man's part and God's part is giving that life. Now, what is this whole thing about Sin not leading to death. Not every sinner can be given life in answer to prayer, however. John draws a distinction between a sin that, not, that leads to death and a sin that does not lead to death. For those who commit the former, the Christian will pray, and by prayer, they will be given life. For the latter, John does not enjoin prayer. I'm not saying that he should pray about that. That is, for one who is recognized as committing it, True, who does not explicitly forbid prayers, as God forbade Jeremiah to pray for the people of Judah in Jeremiah 7:16, but he does not advise it, for he clearly doubts the efficacy of that prayer. What about sin? Verse 17 says that all unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin not leading to death. Previously, in chapter 3, verse 4, he defines sin as lawlessness, as the breaking of God's law. Here, he's defining sin as something that is contrary to God's righteousness, is unknown righteousness. Both words imply that there is an objective of moral standard, the will of God, whether expressed in the law or his justice. That is, sin should be understood as a violation of both God's law, so it's unlawlessness, or God's justice, its unrighteousness. John adds these words because he does not want to be misunderstood. In distinguishing between the sin that leads to death and the sin that does not lead to death, he's not meaning to minimize the gravity of sin, nor does he mean to discourage his readers from praying. For although he cannot advise them to pray for those whose sin leads to death, there is a sin that does not lead to death, and therefore we should pray. What is the promise that is given to those who pray for a sin that is not leading to death? 
The encouragement to pray for others is based on a great promise, namely that the promise that God will hear and he will give life. John has spoken often in his letter of the need to pursue righteousness as one evidence that the individual involved is truly a child of God. But in spite of that fact that the individual Christian must and in fact will pursue righteousness, he will nevertheless also sin and even from time to time become entangled in it. There's a whole point of 1 John 1, 9, right? It says that we shouldn't lie about sinning. We shouldn't hide it. We shouldn't pretend, but we should confess because he's faithful and righteous to um, forgive us of our transgressions. So obviously the Christian should confess sin and turn from it, knowing that he has an advocate in Jesus Christ and that the Father is faithful just to forgive faithful and just to forgive him on the basis of Christ's sacrifice and continual intercession. He intercedes for us. But it is often the case that when he uses this state that the Christian is the least thing that he wants to do when he has sinned is to confess that to God. So what then? Should we be left, should the person be left on himself to suffer the consequences of their sinning? Not at all. John rather tells those who are spiritual that they should pray on their behalf, knowing that God will hear and respond when they pray for others in this way. You know, in all honesty, I just want to take a moment here. It must be acknowledged that this is one area where Christians often fail grievously. For sin in a brother becomes all too often a cause for gossip. They hear about someone sinning. Instead of praying for it, they gossip to others. And they say, well, I'm just sharing you a prayer request. Are you really? We're just wanting to tell a story. What is wrong in this case? The answer is in, is in these verses. For they suggest that it is when the believer is himself in the will of God. Therefore, praying according to the will of God, and he will pray for others. John does not even use the imperative pray, saying that he will pray. He uses the future indicative, saying that the spiritual person will intercede for their sinning brother. I think a parallel passage to this is um, James chapter 5. kind of helps us to see uh, when we hear of someone sinning. James is just around the corner there near John. James chapter 5. And there are some things that are a little puzzling, James, here too. But I want you to see the big picture. James chapter 5, verse 13. And I want you to pay attention because these things we don't know if you're not paying attention. Is anyone among you suffering? How do we know that? When we're paying attention to people suffering then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And he who is, he committed sin, if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effect 
effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Can you give me an example of that? Well, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He was just like us. And he prayed earnestly that we would not rain, and it did not rain on earth for three years and six months. This was in the Old Testament. And it says, then he prayed again, and the sky poured out rain, and the earth produced its fruit. My brethren, if any among you is strays from the truth, and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from his error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sin. There's much power in us interceding for others when we see that they're struggling with a sinful behavior. And that's what John is trying to encourage us here. When there is this sin not leading to death, but the question comes, what is this sin leading to death? And I know you are itching to know what it is. So I'm going to give you three hypotheses that people have interpreted this. And that the, two, the first two ones, I don't really agree with them. And I, I say this with humility. The third one, it's the one that I think I'm more convinced what it means. Um, for John, when he wrote his letter, he didn't need to explain what that sin was because he just... I bet that they were listening him teach, so they knew what that sin was, but we don't. So let's see in the context of the scripture what that sin is. Uh, John's readers had no doubt they were familiar with this expression, but commentators since the apostolic fathers have debated its meaning. It can hardly refer to a sin that is punishable by death, as in some Old Testament situations. You know, the Old Testament, there were capital sins, people that... Um, committed a crime, they were, you know, they had a capital punishment. In some states in the U.S., we have that. Um, or in Acts, when there's someone dying of a sudden death, you know, Ananias and Sapphira, we didn't know until after the fact where there was a revelation. We don't have that kind of revelation anymore. Um, and so, hypothesis number one, he's referring to a, a specific Kind of sin. So in the Mosaic law, certain sins were listed as capital offenses, punishable by death. Further, in the Old Testament, generally a distinction was drawn between sins of ignorance committed unwittingly, which could be cleansed through sacrifice, or malicious or presumptuous sins. Psalm nineteen thirteen, where they they describe it as a, a sin committed with a high hand, for there was no forgiveness. Some church fathers actually made a distinction more So putting, oh, this sin is more, more grievous than the other. This one is more serious than the other. So they, the, some of the church fathers started making those distinctions as degrees of sinfulness. So including murder or adultery, blasphemy, or idolatry, it was beyond pardon, while a minor offenses could be forgiven. This latter developed, developed into the Catholic church the, differ the differentiation between mortals or venial sins and the specification of the seven deadly sins. Well, this is uh, Catholic heresy because there's nowhere in the New Testament there, there's a differentiation between you know, a specific sin through others and one, there's no forgiveness for them. We don't know until after the fact. So really to read these Mortal and venial sins in this passage will be a contradiction of Scripture because that was not true then. 
Oh, adultery is so grievous. Well, did the Lord forgive David? He committed both adultery and, and murder. And God is still forgiven. Second hypothesis is not mortal sins, is not, you know, the whole Catholic thing. It is apostasy. That's maybe what he's talking about here. The second suggestion favored among the modern commentators is that the sin, the sin that leads to death is not a specific sin, nor even backsliding, but total apostasy. It's a denial of Christ and a renunciation of faith. Those who hold to this view usually link these verses with uh, passages such as Hebrews 6 or 10 or chapter 12 and apply them to false teachers who had, in fact, so clearly repeti repeated the truth as to withdraw from the church. Now, my argument is, can a Christian who has been born of God apostatize? Surely John has taught clearly in this letter that the true Christian cannot sin. That is, it's not that we never sin. It's that persist without repentance in a particular sin. Let alone fall away altogether. He's about to repeat, we know in verse 18, we know that everyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who was born of God keep him safe, and the evil one cannot harm him. So can he who does not continue to sin commit a sin that leads into death? I don't believe so. Moreover, John has just written of having life and knowing that they have this life. Can someone who received life, which is eternal, lose that life unto death? No, they can't. It seems clear, unless John's theology is divided against himself, that he who sins unto death is not a Christian. If so, the sin cannot be an apostasy. So we are left with a third alternative. And I want you to, to draw your attention to that. He says in verse 16, If anyone sees a brother committing a sin that leading to death, he shall ask, and God will for him give life to those who commit a sin not leading to death. But he says, there is a sin leading to death, and I do not say he should make requests for this. He doesn't say make requests for a brother. He doesn't say that. He said that on verse 16, but not on the, on, um, on the second half of the verse. The third alternative is the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. This, is, this sin committed by Pharisee was a deliberate, open rejection of a non-truth. They ascribed the mighty works of Jesus, evidently done by the Spirit of God, to the agency of Satan. So that's what the Pharisees did. When Jesus performed those miracles, that's when Christ said, this, is the, um, you know, this sin won't be forgiven them. Because they sealed their destiny when it was given many, many proofs that Jesus was doing that by the Spirit of God, and they attributed that to Satan. He who commits its guilt of an eternal sin... According to Mark 3.29, Matthew 12.22-32. It leads him inevitably into a state of incorrigible moral and spiritual obtuseness because he has willfully sinned against his own conscience. In John's own word, the language that he has, they have loved the darkness more than they love the light. John 3.18-21. And in consequence, they will die in their sins. His sin is in fact leads to death. That is, the outcome of his sin will be spiritual ruin. The final separation of the soul from God, which is the second death, reserved to those 
whose names are not written in the book of eternal life, according to Revelation 20. These have totally rejected the gospel in Christ, and this is the sin of false teachers who willfully and habitually oppose the witness of God concerning the person and the work of Jesus Christ. So 1 John 2, 19 talks about that. They went out from us, but they were not really of us, for if they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out so that it would be shown that they are they all are not of us. So this one is not called the brother. As a commentator puts it, these false teachers manifested the spirit of the Antichrist, separated themselves from the church, and perverted and rejected the apostolic message of redemption in Christ. And the deliberately rejecting the, rejecting the incarnate Son of God in whom eternal life is available, they committed themselves to a spiritual attitude and course of action that could not only be characterized as sin unto death. So if this is correct, and I think this is the best option, John is saying that for those who willfully, resolutely, and irrevocably reject the biblical teaching about Jesus' death, a spiritual death is their destiny. To pray for such one is futile or useless. It will do no good. God has already made a final decision about their future. Supporting the view that John is referring to unbelievers in the present tense of the participle of sinning. So the way that the Greek verb there is, if you, uh, this person is continuously sinning. John elsewhere in the epistle uses the present tense to describe the habitual sins of unbelievers. So chapter 3, verse 4, verse 6, 8, every time he's talking about using this verbal form of sinning, he's specifically talking about unbelievers. Now, I want to clarify something here that John did not forbid us to pray for such people. Why? Since it is impossible for us to know who they are. Do you know when someone has reached that mark? That they have rejected, rejected, rejected to a point that they cannot repent anymore? We don't know that. It's impossible for us to know that. So the apostle merely stated that prayer for them will not be answered. The difficulty with a discussion such as this is that some people just get so fascinating and speculating things. Oh, maybe this is the sin of, unto death. This is the sin unto death. Or that is, or, that, or this one. That they lose sight of the whole picture here. This is not the central message of the passage. Whatever the interpretation we give to the exception, therefore we must always bear in mind that this is the exception and that the burden is laid upon us by John is to pray for any unbeliever whom we see falling into sin and for any believer falling into sin and unbelievers in the same token. Additionally, we're not should not be even quick to note the exceptional case, even assuming that we have been able to decide what nature of this case is. Let us reflect a little further. I want to give you the example of Peter. The example of Jesus' prayer for Peter should make us very cautious when saying, oh, I'm not going to pray for that person because I think they have, they have committed a sin leading to death. Peter had spent three years at Jesus' side. But at the time of Christ's arrest, when asked by a servant girl and others if he knew Christ, if he was his disciple, 
What did Peter do? He denied him three times. Not only he denied him, he even make, made oaths on that regard and even cursed. We might say if we didn't know the end of the story that if anyone had sinned unto death, that might have been Peter. And yet, Peter did not die, either physically or spiritually. He had a lifetime of useful service to the Lord. So far from refusing to pray for him, Jesus, we are told, actually interceded for him. Luke 22, 31, 32, he said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But what did Jesus do? But I prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and you, once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. We do not need encouragements not to pray. That comes naturally, right? We forget to pray for others. We need encouragements to pray, particularly for others. In this responsibility, we're greatly encouraged by John's teaching, by the example of our Lord Jesus Christ and his prayer for Peter. So, in conclusion, the Lord has given us great assurance of salvation in the first letter of John. He gave us much encouragement regarding to our confidence that God answers our prayers, and particularly encouragement to pray for restoration of those who are sinning. And I close with a um, quote from Charles Spurgeon that he gave to his students regarding the power of prayer. Might not we win more victories if we were more constantly used this weapon of all power or all prayer? All hell is vanquished when the believer bows his knee in importunate supplication. Beloved brethren, let us pray. We cannot all argue, but we can all pray. We cannot all be leaders, but we can all be pleaders. We cannot all be mighty in rhetoric, but we can all be prevalent in prayer. Prevalent in prayer. I would sooner see you eloquent with God than eloquent with man. Prayer links us with the eternal, omnipotent, the infinite, and hence it is our chief resort. Resolve to serve the Lord and to be faithful to his cause, for then you may boldly appeal to him for succor. Be sure that you are with God and that you may be sure that God is with you. Let's pray. Gracious Father, I do come before you with gratitude, Lord. You have given us so many resources. May we take hold of them. Lord, thank you for giving us assurance of eternal life. Thank you for giving us confidence that you hear us in that you want to answer our prayers. Lord, give us an open heart and, an open, and eyes open to the needs of our brothers and sisters that might be struggling so that we may be an encouragement to them in person as well as in fervent prayer. Keep us from selfishness, Lord, from self-centeredness, and help us to have a heart such as yours that is willing to intercede for those in need. We ask all these things in Jesus' name.